welcome to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. Our goal is to exalt the Savior, evangelize the sinner, and encourage the saint through faithful exposition of God's Word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for the good word and song here this morning. I'm thankful for the opportunity of being here at Mount Pisgah. I love you and thank God for you. My wife and I, especially her, she listens to you every week. And when I'm not preaching somewhere in the sense of maybe it's 11 o'clock service, I always listen. And I really thank the Lord for how God is working here at Mount Pisgah. Don't you? I praise his name. I brought a few things with me. Let me tell you about this little book. It was written in 1677. In 1650, there was a young boy that was born by the name of Henry Skugel in Scotland. He was born in 1650. He was converted as a child, about 10. When he was 13, he could read the Greek New Testament. When he was 15, he could read the Hebrew Old Testament. When he was 17, he had graduated from college. When he was 18, he was pastoring a church and he was a professor at the college he graduated from there in Scotland. When he was 27, 1677, he wrote these particular sermons as a letter. It's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That year he died. 27 years of age, thinking I probably didn't make an impact on very many people. Well, in those days, they would not only uh, record in the sense of write down all of their sermons, but they would keep them and reproduce them. In the 1700s, Charles Wesley, you ever heard that name? Charles Wesley read these particular sermons called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, here's what Charles Wesley said. For the first time, I understand that Christianity is more than just believing objective facts from the Bible. It's a subjective experience with the living Christ, living his life out and in and through me, just like they have sung here this morning. The crucified life, the resurrected life of Christ. He shared it with his brother John. John said the same thing. And then Charles and John gave a copy of this to George Whitfield. Now, if George Whitfield doesn't ring a bell with you, it's because you have not been schooled concerning our country. There's two people responsible for the first great awakening that God used in our country in the birth of America. One was Jonathan Edwards, probably the keenest, smartest preacher first president of Princeton University. All of our Ivy League schools were established for preacher training. Harvard was a stalwart. And even if you go to Harvard Harvard today, you'll still see that they are there. The sign is to preach the word, even though they don't preach it, even though they don't believe it. Here's what Whitfield said after reading this. I was soundly converted. 
The reason I would bring this book is because J.I. Packer, 10 years ago before he died, he read it and he's the man who wrote Knowing God and he said these words. He said, it may be the greatest influence on my life. And so they have taken it from old King James English and written it in modern day English and every young person and every adult ought to read this book. Now I have some with me. They're just $10. I would encourage you to understand Christianity in the sense of Christ living his life in you. And then I have my new uh, sermon series on the last days on a thumb drive. And if you have your Bible, I'm gonna preach one of those sermons this morning. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Now what you find here in Second Peter is he's refuting some things that are in the last days. In my series, I preach on the last days in salvation. First John 2, beginning at verse 18. The last days in sin, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. We're living in a time when sin is multiplying. There's 18 sins mentioned in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 3, and six of those sins are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. Many of them have to do with the perversion that is being implied and implemented in our own country. And then there's the last days in Satan, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. You find Satan's leash has been extended. Then there's the last days and suffering, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But here I want to preach this morning on the last days and the scoffers. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? Second Peter 3, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, and of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come, there it is, in the last days. Scoffers, walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. To us, not willing that any should perish, but that all 
not some, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, thank you for your word. Open our eyes, fill our hearts with wisdom and truth today to recognize and reject the scoffers. Get me out of the way. Eclipse me by your own outshining. Enlighten your people in the inner man. Build us up in the faith. Engraft your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The last days and the scoffers. Let me define the last days. The last days began when Jesus Christ was born a virgin. The last days will end at the rapture of the church. I want to say that again. The last days is the church age. It's when Jesus Christ was born and when he comes for his church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, Titus 2.13. It's when Jesus comes for his church in the rapture. Look at verse 10. There's the day of the Lord. Now, when is the day of the Lord? Well, I'm glad you'd like to know. The last days is the church age. The day of the Lord begins after the rapture of the church. And the day of the Lord is extended in Scripture until the end of the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And then the last days, yes, the church age, but the day of the Lord ends with the new heaven and the new earth. It's very important for you to know those two terms as you study Scripture. Now, Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 and 25 gives his last discourse. Now, when you have a preacher that repeats something more than once, you better listen. But Jesus said this three times. Now, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to me carefully. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse five, to his disciples, he said, one of the things that you can recognize that right before I come, many shall come and say they're Christ, and false teachers shall come, and you better be careful not to be deceived. And then he said in Matthew 24, 11, many false teachers shall rise, and you find here in 2 Peter, Chapter two and three, a description of these false teachers that are in escalation in the last days. And he said, many false teachers shall come. You better be aware of them, lest you be deceived. And then he said, when a preacher says something three times, you better perk up. He said, in Matthew 24, 24, these words, he said, many false teachers shall arise. And they'll be all about signs and wonders. You said, I'm a preacher, I, I believe only God can do miracles. Well, God's gonna let Satan do a bunch of them. And he said, don't you be deceived. Three times he says, don't be deceived. 
John MacArthur says the greatest need for the 21st century church is discernment. Now here in this text, I want to just try to encourage you as a believer to become more aware and alert to the day that you're living and be able to reject false teaching. Now you have a pastor here that I think is a great man of God. I am seeing him develop himself personally in his walk with the Lord and his journey in Scripture. A good pastor will do three things. He'll feed the sheep. He'll try to win the goats. And he'll kill the wolves. And so a good pastor is one that will alert you to false teaching and encourage you not to embrace things that the Bible does not teach. Now, as we look at this text, I have four points. Here's my first one. I want to talk to you about the discipline. I'm choosing my words carefully. The discipline that you should have as a believer to have godly remembrance. Look at verse one. He says, I share this with you as a way of remembrance. Did you know God expects you to study? God expects you to calculate and to formulate in your mind a biblical thinking that is true to the word and that you would be a person that is disciplined whereby you have the right remembrance where you, where you can recognize these scoffers and these false teachers. Now, as he does that, first of all, he shares a word of endearment. Look at verse one again. He calls them beloved. Look at verse eight, beloved. Look at verse 14, beloved. Look at verse 15, beloved. Look at verse 17, beloved. You said, I didn't have time to look. Well, take my word for it. He says, these are my beloved people. That means he's saying to them, what I'm fixing to tell you, I'm telling you because I love you. We sometimes think that a preacher who loves us won't really get right in our grill. But here's what's happening in this text. Peter's fixing to clean their clock and he's telling them that he's doing it because he loves them. There's a word of endearment. Secondly, there's a word in this text of engagement. Look at verse number one again. He said, I want to stir up your mind. That word stir up means to arouse. It means to stimulate. He's really saying, I want to get a hold of you and I want to shake you real good. I want to wake you up because you have... You have not used your mind. You're to love God with all of your mind. You're to put new software in this mind. You're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice he says you ought to have a pure mind. Look at the scripture. Stir up your pure minds. That word pure is used one other place in the New Testament. It's used in Philippians 1.10 and the King James translates it sincere. Here's translated pure. It is a picture, if you went to the Middle East, even today, 
of a person who makes pottery. And when they would make that pottery, sometimes when they put it in the oven, it would come out of the oven and it would have cracks in it. Now, only a potter could see those cracks, he thought, but he figured if he was gonna sell it, he couldn't sell it with cracks, so he would fill it in with wax. And then he would put a sign out there at his shop that would say this, pottery without wax, and it was there. But a smart shopper, maybe my wife, would come by and see that pottery and hold it up to the sun, S-U-N. And when you held that pottery up to the sun, you could see that it was false advertisement. God said, I want to stir up, hold your mind up, not to the S-U-N, but to the S-O-N. Can I ask you a question? What have you been filling your mind with? There's a word not only of endearment, a word of engagement, but thirdly, there's a word of enablement. Look at verse two, what he says you ought to fill your mind up with. The Old Testament and the apostles and Jesus. Is that what you're filling your mind up with? See, some books inform. Some books reform. But only that book transforms. The only authority that you have for your life is the Bible. And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Why is this important? Because the false teachers are always present. Eight years after Simon Peter wrote this, historians tell us that a man by the name of Marcion appeared in Rome and he said this. He said that the Old Testament is not the Bible. And then he said to everyone who would listen that you need to understand really the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the cultural sense of his modern day. Well, we have Marcion. We have many of them across our land, scoffers. One of them is in Atlanta, Georgia. And he says that you should be disconnected from the Old Testament. And he says that really we need to reinvent. The 
the New Testament. Won't you listen to this preacher? Most of the New Testament is quotations from the Old Testament. I want to say that again. Most of the New Testament is quotations from the Old Testament. And Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, he quoted from the Psalms and the prophets and all through the Old Testament himself, himself. This is a Jesus book. First promise of Jesus is Genesis 3.15. You find shadows and foreshadows of Christ and everything in this book. You need to know the discipline. Don't ever let anybody cause you to question. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, immutable, unchangeable, eternal word of a living God. Do you know something of the discipline of godly Bible remembrance and recollection? Hide the word in your heart that you might not sin against God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We're clean, John 15, three, through the word. We are being transformed 2 Corinthians 3.18, by the living, written word of the living God. The second thing I want you to see in the text is not only the discipline that we should have of godly remembrance or recollection, but notice the scoffers, their disregard for God's return. Look at verse four. The scoffers say, oh, Jesus, Said he was going to come. He's a liar. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, we know it's in John 14. He said, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. If I'm going to prepare a place for you, don't get upset. I'm coming back. And when I get your house built, we fix it to have a honeymoon, and we're going to spend time together for eternity. These scoffers, here's what they do. Notice with me their identification. How do we identify a scoffer? Weirdsby says a scoffer is somebody who makes light or questions one of the major doctrines of the Bible. Now we have many scoffers today that are questioning the word of God. And so we identify these scoffers and they are among us in multitudes in the day that we're living. Some of you think if a preacher calls somebody out that he's unloving and unkind. Well, you wouldn't have liked the Apostle Paul because he wrote to Timothy when he was pastor of the church at Ephesus and he said, by the way, Alexander has done me much harm and he's teaching false teaching and if the secretary looks him up on the computer, I'm talking about Alexander that's a coppersmith. Paul was very detailed in recognizing and refuting and rejecting false teachers. But if you have a preacher like you have here at this church, some of you think, well, boy, he shouldn't call people out. Like Maybe some of you are already thinking I shouldn't have called Andy Stanley out. I want to clarify who I was talking about. <laughs> See, I don't, I don't mind calling him out. 
We're living in a day when people are on the web and people have TV programs and people are infiltrating people's minds with thinking that undermines the scriptures. Somebody needs to tell it like it is. And somebody needs to refute these guys because what's happening is we can identify these false teachers. The second thing I want you to say is, see, it's not only their identification, but notice their indulgence or intention. Now, the Bible says here they're walking after their fleshly lust. Do you see that in verse four? They walk after their fleshly lust. Do, do you, if you read Jude's account of this in Jude 17, 18, 19, which is a repetition of this particular text, most believe that Jude, Jesus' brother, probably heard this from Simon Peter and he wrote this in his particular letter. And in Jude 17, 18, and 19, Jude says they're sensual. That's the Greek word that he uses. Now, Linsky and MacArthur say something here in their commentaries that's worth repeating. And that is false teachers always have an ulterior motive. And when they tell you to sow into their ministry, what they're saying is, I want to get rich, and we don't give a flip about you. And they'll say things like this, send me a thousand and sow into my ministry, and God will give you 10,000. Bill Stafford said to one of them, Oral Roberts, he said, let's just turn that around. You send me a thousand, and God will give you 10,000. Let's operate on your faith instead of mine. Listen, don't you listen to these quacks. And our, our, our airways are filled with them. Most of them are on the Tongues Broadcasting Network, TBN. And you say, well, preacher, now, I just can't believe that you're preaching this. Well, talk to Peter about it. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit. I'm just reading, reading, readdressing what he said. And we're living in the time that we need to realize these people actually if you look at their private life. Anybody who accepts perversion is probably perverted. Not only do you see in this text their identification, their indulgence, but notice with me, their invention. Now, what do I mean by invention? They embrace the doctrine of uniformitarianism. I'm not trying to impress you with big words. What is the doctrine of uniformitarianism? Well, when you read verses five and six, here's basically what they said. That if God did create the world, and I'm, they, they really have questions about that. Then he put in certain laws. It's what a lot of people that started our country believed. They were deist. And then he took his hand off of it and he's let things operate with the natural laws and he never intervenes. And if the flood did happen, there's an explanation for it. And the fire of judgment that Jesus promised, that's not coming either. 
And they deny the God of the supernatural. And the end result is a Marxist regime, a one world government that rejects God, period. If you don't think it's happening, let me give some statistics about South Carolina. 80% of South Carolinians never go to church once. Out of the 20% in South Carolina that go to church, only 10% go once a month. It's now estimated that 50% of the people that live in America question whether there even is a God. Out of the people that are saved or say they're saved. John S. Dickerson in his book called The Great Evangelical Recession that probably only in America is 7% of the people really truly born again. That's why you can have a representative from Charleston attend Tim's, attend Tim Scott, the Senator Scott's prayer breakfast and brag about living in fornication. We're living. in a dark day. What's some insight from this? Well, let me just tell you how dark it is. How many of you believe if your heart stopped beating that you're dead? Then why is it when we can hear the heartbeat of a baby six weeks after conception that baby's not alive. They disregard God's return. Thirdly, they deny God's retribution. I'm gonna go pretty quick here. If you read verses five and six, here's what it essentially says. God didn't really judge people in the flood. Well, where do you meet a bunch of them if you die and go to hell? And then they said, all this about the flood, the fire, that's a joke. These hellfire and brimstone preachers. That's why I told Jeremy, I was in a church just a few weeks ago and they were singing, our God is an awesome God. He reigns, and they praise God for grace and mercy, but I've never heard anybody do a praise course praising God for his wrath. I told Jeremy he needs to write some. You may, not, you may not like what I'm fixing to say, but if you think that God didn't judge in the flood, you are 
100% wrong. And if you think God's not gonna judge in the future with fire, you've missed it because the book says it. And if you think that the future, God's not gonna bring judgment, he is. The only difference between you and a person who's lost is God poured out his wrath on his own son in your stead. And he was a perpetuation. He satisfied the laws, the demands of God's holy law. They deny. God's retribution. Lastly, and I'm finished. Notice that they, in the scriptures, before he closes this sermon, in this paragraph, he not only tells us we need to know the discipline of godly remembrance. We need to recognize these scoffers, they disregard God's return. And they deny God's retribution. But I want to leave you with a positive word, and that's the declaration of God's restraint. Three things I want to give you in closing. Number one, God's perspective of time. Look at verse number seven and eight. Excuse me, verse eight. One day with the Lord is a thousand years. We're just in the end of the sixth day. 4,000 years of the Old Testament, 2,000 years of the New Testament, six is the number of man, and seven is God's perfect number. There are seven sevens in the book of Revelation. When we've been around a billion years, it's just... Uh, no time, because God's been around before the beginning, because there was no beginning. And when we sing songs like, God's an on time, God, no, God's always in the present. Now, I mean, you, you think it's on time for you, but he planned your life before you were, and if it bothers you that he planned your life before you were, he wrote a poem about you before you were so that you could live in the reality of what he wrote about you. And if you don't, you're going to suffer. And if you do, you're going to praise God. Our God. His perspective of time. Not only you find in this text God's perspective of time, but notice God's patience in tenderness. Look at verse number nine. God's aware of his promise. God's long-suffering. Underline long-suffering. Terry Johnson has written two books that are very significant. I carry them with me most of my meetings because I carry the books that have influenced my life and he has written a book that's been published by Banner of Truth about the attributes of God. And then he's written another book that's been printed by Reformation Heritage called The Excellencies of God. In that book, The Excellencies of God, he says this, listen carefully. In God's grace, that's something he does for you. 
God gives you Jesus. Jesus is grace. You say, well, grace is God's unmerited favor. No, grace is more than that. Grace is Jesus Christ. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Who's the grace of God that appeared to all men? It was Christ, Titus 2.11. Grace is more than a provision. Grace is a person. I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by Jesus. I'm saved by grace. Then why do you sing Jesus saves? Are y'all getting me at all? But then he has a third chapter called God's patience. Now listen to me carefully. Grace is something God does for you. Grace is something he does for you. Mercy is something he does not do to you. It all, it's all about you. But patience is about himself. Here's what he says. He says, God restrains himself in patience. And it keeps him from wiping us off the face of the map. In my opinion, you know what's wrong with America? We're strutting our way to hell. We're full of ourselves. God has been patient with you. The last thing I want you to see is not only God's perspective of time, God's patience and tenderness, but God's plea in turning. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Look at verse number nine. But that all would just ask Jesus in their heart. that all would just accept him. I hear people say that to me all the time. Have you accepted the Lord? That is not Bible salvation. I have a new booklet that's at the printers. You know why? Because I have printed a booklet which is a track of telling people how to be saved I just did a meeting this past week. I'm doing a, a lot of Bible prophecy meetings. Let me tell you what's missing in our churches. Verse nine. In this meeting, we had a Q&A time. And a lady gave me this question. Why do you stress repentance? Jesus said, come as you are. I said, show me where he said it. You say, well, there's a good chorus that people sing, come as you are. Jesus never said it. And that's not a good chorus. You say, why is it not a good chorus? Because Jesus said, you come repenting. 
Jesus said, repent or perish. Come sick of yourself. Come with godly sorrow in your heart. Come recognizing that you're a sinner by nature and by choice and that you're perishing and unless God saves you, you're gonna bust hell wide open. Miss Bertha Smith, when I pastored in Anderson, South Carolina in the 80s, early 80s, I would go meet with her in Cowpens. Here's what she said, I'll never forget the day. She said, Ron, when you give an invitation, what do you say to people? I said, well, come and accept Jesus. She said, that's not in the Bible. I said, well, Miss Bertha, I tell them to come and ask Jesus in their heart. She said, that's not in the Bible. She said, you're the reason our churches are filled with lost people. She said, the call to salvation is a call to repent, turn from sin, and trust in Jesus as Lord. I want to ask you a question. Are you a repenting person? There's a man that influenced me greatly. He pastored East Gaffney Baptist Church. His name was George Lockerbie. Right before he retired, he preached through Malachi. And he didn't give an invitation. And so at a deacon's meeting, one of the deacons said to him, Dr. Lockerbie, I notice you have not been given an invitation. He said, why? He said, when, do you, when did you ever respond to one? I want to ask you a question. When have you responded to God's word in brokenness? Would you consider yourself a person that is discovering things about yourself every day by the Holy Spirit? and mortifying and putting to death everything in you and about you that doesn't look like Jesus. Are you a repenting person? I'll make this statement and I'll stand on it. If you didn't initially repent and continually repent, you're not a saved person. Roland Hill, a Puritan preacher, looked up at his wife right before he died. He said, darling, 
I'm going to miss my best friend. She said, darling, I'm going to miss you too. He said, I'm not talking about you. He said, my best friend in life has not been you. My best friend in life has been repentance. You know how I know I'm saved? God keeps showing me things about me. that he needs to cut out of me. And at the Bema seat, you'll be glad you were a repenting person. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. Paul said, I preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Easy believism. And a gospel without repentance has filled our churches with deceived people who believe that they're saved. But they're not. Are you repentant? Some of you got children and grandchildren that have made professions of faith but give no evidence of possession of life because the evidence of being saved is a pursuit of holiness and a confession of sin and contrition of repentance. The scoffers are unrepentant. Jude makes this observation in Jude 17, 18, and 19. He says, these are people that are unsaved because they do not have the Holy Spirit. Are you saved? Are you deceived? Are you husbands, fathers protecting your family from the scoffer? You have the discipline of a biblical mind. Let's stand together. Standing together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment. It's not up to me to say who's saved and who's not saved in this place. 
It's up to the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that you're really not one of Jesus's saved people, I'd encourage you to slip out and come. And if you're a believer and your repentance is not thorough and up to date, you ought to get in this altar. And if your sin is not breaking your heart, you ought to ask God to humble you. If you're seeing everybody else's sin, but not your sin, hard on them, but not yourself, God has spoken to you. Why not slip out and come? Lord, I thank you today for speaking to us. I believe there's a lot of people possibly under the sound of my voice that have never truly and thoroughly repented. And it's not their lifestyle to repent. They very seldom ask others to forgive them. God, may they respond to you and receive the gift of salvation, which is repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, why don't you come? Thanks for taking the time to listen to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. If you'd like additional information, please visit mtpisgah.cc.